Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Good morning, church. It's good to see you here in person. And I'm also glad the number of you are worshiping with us at home online. Uh, Some of you here in person have, well, you heard Pastor Brian talking a little bit about uh, our onliners, uh, this online congregation. But some of you in person might not know that we have, I don't know, well over a hundred people who have taken the step, not just to be those who are watching online, but those who really want to connect in community online. So we have this growing online congregation. And so if you are worshiping at home and you are an onliner and you want to get involved with our online community, we have online small groups, we have a monthly online hangout, lots of things happening online. But if you are interested in being an online member, uh, you can get more information at wolc.com forward slash online members. Fill out the form there. I'd love to connect with you. And uh, for those of you in person, uh, be praying for our online congregation because there's people who have communicated to us that if it wasn't for Word of Life Church online, they may not even be in the faith anymore. So uh, pray for those onliners. And you onliners, pray for pray for this motley crew of in-person people because they need your prayers. I'm looking around and they need your prayers. So you pray for us, we'll pray for you. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, um, for those of you in person, uh, Pastor Jacob mentioned last week that on Tuesday nights in the Life Center at 6.30, we host Celebrate Recovery, CR. And uh, CR is led by Pastor Tyrese Barnett. Pastor Tyrese, wave at everybody so everybody can see Pastor Tyrese. He does a wonderful job leading Celebrate Recovery, which is a 12-step ministry. And so a lot of people, when they hear of the 12 steps, they think, well, this is, this is just for people with addiction issues. And Celebrate Recovery uses the 12 steps, but we use the 12 steps in order to lead people to Jesus. And so we invite you to check out CR. Uh, if you have addiction issues, of course, you're welcome. But if you just feel stuck, like you're, you're following Jesus, but you're, you're stuck. There's an issue in your life that you can't seem to, to, to overcome. I think Celebrate Recovery can help you. So uh, check that out Tuesday night, 6.30 in the Life Center or find Pastor Tyrese after service and he can give you more information. All right, well, I wanna give attention to our gospel reading. We'll be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. And I want us to revisit this this very iconic story from Jesus. But before we jump into the sermon, I want us to pray the prayer for the week together. And so if you're in the building and you have a bulletin, the prayer for the week is printed there. And for those of you online, you can find it at wolc.com forward slash bulletin. You can get an online copy of the bulletin and you can see it there. We'll also put it on the screens for you. But if you would, before we get to the sermon, join me and let's pray together the prayer for the week. Let's pray. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you 
and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Jesus was a master communicator in part because Jesus taught using stories. Very often, Jesus would tell a story, and I think some of the best stories of Jesus come when Jesus is asked a question, and in response, he begins to tell a story. And the stories of Jesus were not merely illustrations to prove a point. Rather, the stories of Jesus were told in such a way that they would stir the imagination of his listeners. These stories were told in a provocative way that it might spur and stir up our faith in King Jesus. And today we are encountering Jesus when he is asked a question by a lawyer, by a religious law expert. We would say in sort of modern speak, this is a Bible scholar. So this was the the Bible expert who knew the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. And from that life, he had a question for Jesus. And this is what he asked, Luke 10, 25. He asked Jesus, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we work with the answer to the question, I wanna make sure that we understand the question right. I want us to to all be on the same page concerning what this Bible expert was asking Jesus. He said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And sadly, we have misunderstood, I think for a long time, And we have misunderstood eternal life to be life in heaven when we die. And so the assumption, and I really think a wrong assumption, is that we have thought that this religious law expert, this Bible scholar was asking, Jesus, Jesus, what do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? Now, the problem with that is that is not at all what the Bible scholar was asking. That's not what he was talking about because first century Jewish people were not asking questions about heaven and who goes there. Um, And in fact, you can, I mean, you can, you can read the Old Testament, you can read the Hebrew scriptures and you don't hear a whole lot of talk about that, about going to heaven upon death. And so this Bible expert who knew the Hebrew scriptures well, that's, he wasn't asking questions about heaven. He, like many first century Jewish people were asking, when is the God of heaven gonna come and bring the kingdom of God to earth? This is, the, this is what they were asking, right? The disciples, when they were gathered with Jesus in, in Acts chapter one, it's recorded there. They, they were asking, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They weren't asking questions about going to heaven. They were asking questions about when is heaven gonna come to earth? When is the kingdom of God coming? So what is this eternal life? I think it's best understood as the life of the age to come. This Bible expert was asking Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit the life of the the coming age? Do, do, Do you understand that kind of language? 
first century Jewish people, they had this understanding and orientation around time that was built around this age, this present evil age and the age to come. So there was the understanding that they were living in the first century in an age where sin was rampant, where idolatry and injustice was throughout the land and where indeed the people of God were an oppressed people. And they were oppressed. They were, they were living in their ancestral homeland, but they were under the boot of the Roman empire. And so this was their situation now in the present age, but they had hope because they were listening to the Hebrew prophets that God was gonna to come to God's people, that there would be a king like David, a prophet like Moses, who would lead the people of God out of this present evil age and into a new age of, of abundant life, an age of peace and prosperity, an experience of real shalom. That was this age to come under the rule and reign of God's king, the Messiah. And so this Bible expert who was living in the present evil age was longing to experience life in peace and prosperity in that coming age. And that's what he was asking Jesus. What must I do to experience life in the age to come? And so Jesus responds to his question with a question, which is typical Jesus form. I mean, he's gonna get to the story in a little bit, but often people would come to Jesus with a question and he would respond with a question. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? What's in there? And the Bible expert didn't hesitate. He said, love God, love neighbor. And so you can, you can see Jesus' response in the gospels. This is verse 28. Jesus says, right, do this and you will live. I mean, it's, it's just that easy. And I love how fast the Bible expert was able to recall that. And Jesus was like, right on guy, you got it. This is it. You want to experience life in the age to come. You want to experience a life that's filled with blessing and peace and all that good stuff in this future coming age. Love God, love neighbor. That's it, easy peasy. Now, if it was me, if I was in the position of that Bible scholar, I would have given my answer. I would have received the affirmation from Jesus and I just would have walked away with like, I got it now, I got the right answer. I would have been satisfied with that. Not this Bible scholar because he wanted to, well, you heard it in the gospel reading, he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make sure that his teeny tiny constricted narrow definition of loving neighbor was the right one. So instead of just walking away, this Bible scholar responds to Jesus and says, now Jesus, um, who exactly is my neighbor? And this is when Jesus moves into story form. This is when Jesus responds with this very iconic story, a story that we've grown to call the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's how we know this from Luke chapter 10. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan. But I think really this story would be better titled uh, The Despised Samaritan. Um, because it paints the picture better. Because we've heard Good Samaritan for so long, we have this assumption that Samaritans were good. 
And from, again, a first century Jewish perspective, Jewish people did not look kindly upon Samaritans. Samaritans weren't good, they were despised. Because first century Jewish people, they, they saw the Samaritans as a, as a completely different race of people. They weren't fully Jewish. They were, their ancestry was half Jewish and half pagan. And the Samaritans were adamant that you worship the one true living God in Samaria, where the Jews were like, no, no, no. The very, the very heart and center of our worship is at the temple in Jerusalem. And so Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They despised one another. They hated one another. And it was a racial kind of hate. The racial tension between Jews and Samaritans in the first century was as strong as anything between the racial hate between blacks and whites in American history. And so when you hear this story, just, just remember, and actually the New Living Translation, I'm gonna read the story from the New Living Translation. Uh, the NLT actually adds the word despised uh, to make the point that these Samaritans, these weren't the good guys. But let's hear Jesus once again tell this story in response to the question, who is my neighbor? This is Luke 10, I'm gonna start verse 30. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up and they left him half dead beside the road. It's a Jewish man getting robbed, left for dead. By chance, a priest, a Jewish priest, mind you, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, a Levite, a Jewish Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Now I imagine when Jesus is telling this story and enters a Samaritan, I can imagine there's a guy sort of in, in, in the back of the crowd that as soon as Jesus says Samaritan, he goes, boo, right? So Jesus is like, then a Samaritan came, boo, Samaritans. That guy's booing the Samaritans in the back of the crowd until Jesus says he saw the man and felt compassion for him. Boo, the Samaritan had co co compassion. Wait a minute. This is a despised Samaritan. What's, what's he doing having compassion on this guy? Verse 34, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, took him to a, to hotel, a hotel room. Uh, there weren't hospitals uh, at this time, right? Christians had not invented them yet. There weren't hospitals. So if someone didn't have a home to go to and they were sick or they were ailing, often they would get a, a hotel room. So he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you next time I'm here. Now remember that Jesus is not simply telling this story 
to make a point or to illustrate a point. Jesus is telling this story in such a way to challenge not just this Bible scholar, this Bible expert, but all those who are listening to this conversation. He's telling this story that he might challenge his listeners to rethink what life looks like lived within the kingdom of God. Remember all of the teachings of Jesus, all of the stories of Jesus were an announcement of the kingdom of God. Jesus wants his followers, including this Bible scholar expert who's coming to Jesus to think about what does life look like? What are the radical changes and differences in living life under the rule and reign of God in God's kingdom? And life in the kingdom of God is not a matter of simply loving people who are like you, because that's easy, right? Anybody, you can, you can love people who love you and you can love people who are like you, who are similar to you, that are in your tribe, that's easy. But life in the kingdom of God requires us to love the other, to love those who don't look like us, to love those who don't talk like us, to even love those who don't vote like us. Hello. The radical call of love embedded in this story is love of a different kind. And so Jesus wraps up the story with a question for this Bible scholar. Jesus asks Luke 10, 36, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Yes, Jesus says, now go and do the same. Notice that Jesus is action oriented here. Notice that Jesus did not say to the Bible scholar, now go and pray about the things that I have said. Jesus didn't say, well, you're, a, you're an expert in the law. You know your Bible. Go and do some research and write me an essay on mercy and turn in to me tomorrow. He didn't say that. Jesus didn't say, now, now find a hotel with a sunset behind it, take a picture, post it to your Instagram with a pithy little caption about mercy. It's not what he said. Jesus said, go and do. Not just pray about, not just think about, not just post to your social media about, but actually go and do mercy. The life of the age to come for those of us that are seeking first God's kingdom is a go and do kind of life. If we're gonna experience the, the life of the future age, this life of blessing, this life, life of prosperity and peace, it's a go and do. It's not just a go and sit, it's a go and do kind of life. This is why James, the brother of Jesus writes, James chapter one, but don't just listen to God's word. You must go do what it says. Otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully 
into the perfect law that sets you free. And if you do what it says, don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. The perfect law is the law of love. It's what the Bible scholar answered in response to Jesus, right? That the perfect law is the law of loving God and loving neighbor, which includes loving people who aren't like us, loving those who are on the other side. This is the law of love. And so James says, if you hear the proclamation of this perfect law, right? If you hear God's message of love, that God is love and he's calling us to love God and to love one another. If you hear that message and you don't do anything in response to hearing about all that gracious love, you're like the guy that walks by and catches himself in the mirror and sees a little dirt on his cheek, a little dangly thing hanging out of his nose. He's got the sleepy in his eye and his unkept hair. He looks like, yeah, that's good enough and just keeps on walking and doesn't do anything. Jesus, you wouldn't do that because we are looking in this perfect law of love and it's now prompting us to go and do. Jesus says something similar at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my father in heaven will enter. And for me, this is, this is some of the most sobering things that Jesus has to say, right? Because calling Jesus Lord is not the same thing as doing what the Lord Jesus says. Those, Jesus says, are two different things. Following Jesus is a go and do kind of life. Our life in pursuit of Jesus is not primarily about theology, that is what we believe, liturgy, the shape of our worship, or piety, that is our heart's devotion. But it's a way of living that is shaped by the Holy Spirit around the death and resurrection of Jesus. I believe that this is what's most essential to our faith. What's most essential about being a Christian is the, the way that we live, this go and do kind of life. Now, listen, theology matters, right? What we believe about God is important. I mean, come on, you're word of lifers, you know that. Theology, it's important. I mean, if you worship an angry God, guess what? You can become an angry person. That's just the way it is. Theology matters. Theology is important. Liturgy, that is the shape of our worship and our lives of prayer, absolutely essential. You can't follow Jesus apart from the, the forms of prayer and worship. We gotta have that, it's important. And yes, our piety, that is our, our heart's devotion and passion for God, you gotta have that. There has to be intentionality in this, th in this thing. All three are important. Theology and liturgy and piety. All three of them are important, but all three of them only find their significance if they prompt us to act and lead. Because church, an unbelieving world is not judging us so much on what we believe, what we believe about God. They're not judging us so much on 
how we worship and how we pray. I mean, they might scoff, they might laugh, might think it's silly, but they're not judging us on that. They're not judging us on what we believe in our heart. An unbelieving world is judging us based on what we do or what we don't do, right? I mean, you could ask any run-of-the-mill non-Christian, why don't you go to church? You can ask, uh, you can ask any, anyone outside the church, non-Christian, why don't you go to church? And the answer is always the same. And you know what it is. Help me, help me fill in the blank here. We ask them about church and they say, well, I'm not going to that church because that church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to be living in this life of the age to come, experiencing that life in the kingdom. It's those who do the will of my Father in heaven. We can talk a big game when we are gathered in worship about showing mercy, but that to me is completely different if it doesn't transform us and inspire us and motivate us to then go into our neighborhoods and workplaces and schools and actually show the mercy of God. I mean, we can talk a big game when we're gathered. The question is, are we going to live it when we are scattered in these various places? Because Jesus in responding to this Bible expert, I think in part what's in his response is this action orientation is this way of living. And so I do believe that this is what the Christian life is. It's a, it's a way of living, but it's a way of living that's shaped by the Holy Spirit around the death and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, I believe that our faith is a religion of doing, right? There was a saying in the early church that we don't believe great things, we live great things. We don't speak great things, we live great things. I think from the very beginning, the people of God in, in pursuit of Jesus, they were living a certain kind of lifestyle that was alternative and different and holy and separate and other. So I do believe that this, this what we're in is a religion of doing, but it's a, it's a certain kind of doing that is prompted by what the Holy Spirit is doing within us, that is shaping our hearts. So Jesus comes to rescue us and to transform us from sin and wickedness and evil, to transform us on the inside so that our doing in the world flows out of our being. And so the, the, the two are connected. Yes, we're action oriented. Yes, we're doing, but it's a doing that flows out of our being. That is who we are and who we're becoming. Because the gospel message is not uh, go and try harder and do better. No, the gospel message is a message of grace that God has come to us in the form of Jesus to rescue and to save us from a life of idolatry and injustice and sin and wickedness. And so Jesus by his death and his resurrection comes to take all that away. And then through Jesus, God pours out the Holy Spirit and it's God, the Holy Spirit, who's working inside of us to rescue us and transform us, right? This is the gospel message that it starts in here. And so we are people who go and do, but we go and do from a, a place of deep transformation on the inside. 
So we're a people of doers, but we're, we're spirit-inspired, we're spirit-formed, we're spirit-empowered doers so that our doing flows out of our being. Our reliance is upon what the Holy Spirit is doing within us. And, and that has to be our primary reliance because if we're not relying on the work of the Holy Spirit to form and transform us, well, then we'll end up relying on either external rules or willpower. And neither of those end very well, right? It, it, Christians who try that to just live by a set of rules, right? Jesus is clear what you need to know is love God and love neighbor defined by Jesus. But we have this tendency to wanna add all these rules. Rule-based religion never produces merciful people who go and do mercy. Right? Some of you came out of rule-based, fear-based religion and you're like, amen, right? There, there is, that's a dead end road. So we don't rely on external rules and neither we rely on willpower. I mean, cause willpower only gets you so far. If you're depending on going and doing in Jesus name based on willpower, you are eventually gonna burn out. Neither willpower nor the rules will get us to where we want to go. Both of those are dead in roads. This go and do kind of life is not a matter of, of willpower, but it's a willingness to open up to the Spirit's power and let the Holy Spirit deeply form us. And out of that formation, we begin to do and act. But here's the kicker in all of this. The being comes before the doing, but then the doing also shapes our being, right? So the habits you keep, the things that you do, that's also forming your being. So it's a little bit of like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Is it the being or the doing or it's the, well, we have to give attention to both because you're being formed and shaped by the habits that you keep. I've told Josh Myers, our band director, who you see up here shredding lead guitar. I've told him that one day I wanna learn blues guitar. I mean, I know a little bit, I can fumble around, I know a little 12 bar shuffle, I can, I can do a little bit. But if, how do you become a guitar player? You play guitar, <laughs> right? And that, there's no way around it. If you wanna be a guitar player, you become a guitar player in your soul and being by practicing the guitar, right? So you become a guitar player by doing guitar. The, the doing is what shapes your being. Uh, think about it this way. It's, it's a, I think about it a little bit also about the, the gift of children. So I am by nature, not a very patient person. So my family here, please do not ask them to testify. I'll just tell you it's true. And so I'm the kind of guy, if I'm on the belt and I'm in the right-hand lane and I'm coming up on a red light and there's three cars in the right-hand lane, stopped at the red light and one car in the left lane, I'm going into the left lane. How many of you with me on that, right? Speed and efficiency, baby. How fast can we get there? Uh, under the speed limit, mind you. So I'm by nature, not a patient person. So what did God do about that? God sent me three blessed children, right? Now children, they are a blessing. They are an inheritance. I know all that, but come on parents. Kids are like 10% fun, 90% work. Like any of you parents ever like teach your child, if you have this experience, have you ever taught your child a new skill? 
and you show them how to do it and they're taking too long and you kind of take it over from them. I was showing Dylan, our youngest, how to chop tomatoes. And we have this really sharp tomato knife. And so I was showing him how to hold it and how to carefully chop those tomatoes. And then I let him have it and I'm watching him. It's Tuesday night. That's taco Tuesday night at the Vreeland house. We got tacos to eat. I can't eat my tacos without chopped tomatoes. And he's just taking his time. Now I should have been happy about his safety with the tomato knife. I wasn't, I was completely irritated about how long it was taken. I'm like, get out of the way, give me that knife. I'll cut those tomatoes. I think the gift of parenting is the gift of learning to do patient things so that you can become a patient person. So is it being or doing? Jesus says to go and do, yes. It's the doing and that doing, our habits, the more you do merciful things, the more merciful you're gonna become. Yeah, it is certainly doing certain things so that our being and our hearts are transformed, but it's also opening and being aware of what God the Holy Spirit's doing on the inside of us. So it's really both. All doing and no being leads to legalism. All being and no doing leads to laziness. And there's no room in the kingdom of God for either. So we want to give attention to both. We want to do both. We wanna be aware of both. And this sentiment is communicated in the prayer for the week that we prayed all together. Did you, did you notice the language? Listen one more time to the, the prayer for the week. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Amen. Right, it's the prayer for the week is shaped around this understanding that yes, we need to understand what we're supposed to be doing, but we also need the grace to become the kinds of people that can faithfully live that out. Jesus gives his commands like any religious leader. Actually, every great religion in the world has a religious leader that gives commands, like go do these things. But what makes Jesus unique is that Jesus not only gives us the command to go and do, and he tells us and gives the shape for what love for neighbor and love for God looks like, but Jesus also promises the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might have the grace and the power to accomplish those so that we're not depending on rules. We're not depending on our own willpower. We're depending upon the grace of the Holy Spirit at work within us. And so now as we come to the table of the Lord, we do so because Jesus said, well, if it's in Luke's gospel, when Jesus was gathered with his disciples for that final meal, it says that Jesus at one point, he takes bread and he breaks it, he blesses it and he gives it. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we come to the, to the table of communion, when we come to the Lord's table, this is our opportunity to go and do in such a way that we are doing something but we're also receiving something on the inside. 
Stand up with me if you would, and let's prepare our hearts for communion. I love all of the, the action of our worship, because worship in one sense is something that we, we do. Worship is not just thinking thoughts about God. Worship is an expression. Worship is something that we do. But the most sacred and holy moment of our time of worship is when we come to the Lord's table by the Lord's invitation and, and we do something. In just a moment, ushers are gonna release you. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna step out and you're gonna come down to the front and there you're gonna see a person holding a basket of bread and you're gonna hear them say, the body of Christ broken for you. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna take a piece of that bread and then you're gonna see someone holding a cup and they're gonna say, the body of Christ or the blood of Christ shed for you. And you're gonna take that bread, dip it in the cup and you're going to eat. And this, my friends, is how we commune with Jesus. This is how we open up our hearts to that transforming grace. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, let's do so by making a twofold confession. We wanna first confess our Christian faith. We'll do that together using the words of the Apostles' Creed, and then we'll confess our sins, and then we'll come to the table of the Lord and, and everyone is invited, you're invited. Jesus invites you to come to the table. So join me church and let's confess our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And join me as we confess our sins together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy in the name of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. And now we come to the table of the Lord by the very invitation of our Lord Jesus. And so we say that this table, this is not the table of the church is the table of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, come. It is the Lord's will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. 
the blood of Christ shed for you.